0: Welcome to Down There Aware, a podcast bringing attention to gynecologic cancers and women's health care. Disclaimer, we talk about a lot of stuff on this podcast. Girl stuff, period stuff, personal stuff. So if that's not your cup of tea, you should probably turn us off. But there's a lot of educational opportunities to be heard. So we hope you stick around. Welcome back to another episode of Down There Where. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Mary Jennifer Markham.
1: And in full disclosure, I will let you know that Mary Jennifer was a student of mine when I taught in public school music in Fort White. And so um, I got to know her and had the pleasure of working with her mother. So it's wonderful. We've been able to stay in touch and I've been able to see uh, the great family she's raising. That's been fun for me.
0: So, uh, Dr. Markham, could you share a little bit about who you are, what you're doing now,
2: um, and how you
0: got into your field?
2: Sure. So, I am a medical oncologist. I um, uh, work at an academic medical center in Florida. Um, I uh, actually started my life wanting to be uh, a psychologist. Uh, I in high school wanted to be a psychologist and. All through college and I was even in a graduate program in psychology when I decided that I probably had made a mistake and that I really didn't want to be a psychologist. Um, I began um, uh, with an interest in learning more about medicine. Um, So I actually dropped out. I quit that graduate program about a year into it uh, in order to return um, to my university to take science classes so that I could apply to medical school. While I was um, doing that coursework, I I needed a job. I needed to be able to pay for my uh, additional education and applications for medical school. And so I answered a classified ad in the newspaper for a desk clerk position at a doctor's office. As it turns out, that doctor's office was an oncology office uh, specializing in the care of all types of patients with cancers uh, and blood disorders. I uh, was fortunate to be mentored by the lead physician in that practice. And I think he really um, understood that my goal was to to be a physician and to soak up as much as I could before uh, hopefully getting accepted into medical school. What I didn't realize in that uh, two years of working in that office as a front desk person is that I would fall in love with uh, the whole prospect of taking care of people with cancer. So that was a pivotal uh, time in my life because I I found my calling, really, even before being in medical school. So I um, ended up being accepted and attended medical school in Miami at the University of Miami. And then I uh, was fortunate to return to the University of Florida for my residency and fellowship program in hematology and oncology. My goal actually was to uh, practice with a specialization in lymphomas, a type of blood cancer. But what I, um, again, opportunity knocked, and I had the opportunity to take care of a physician's patients while she went on a sabbatical for a period of a few months. She was a gynecologic oncologist, and her patients were all women with gynecologic cancers, I was specifically helping her out with those patients who were in the middle of chemotherapies for their cancer. And I really began starting taking um, care of women with gynecologic cancers at that time, not realizing that I would uh, also find my passion there. And so uh, a few years ago, I stopped taking care of patients with lymphoma. And now all I take care of are women with gynecologic cancers. That is my exclusive practice, Um, and I'm fortunate to be in an academic medical center where that's uh, possible for me to do. It would be difficult for me to do that in a different setting.
1: You know, I love to hear how um, different things influence our paths, and you've just affirmed that it's so important. The choices we make um, really can determine where we end up. That's a very cool journey. (laughs) Yes. So,
0: we um, have heard how you got into gynecologic oncology, and recently uh, you co-authored a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, uh, which is an annual report, as we understand, on clinical cancer advances. Would you begin by sharing with us just a little about the history of and purpose for this annual report?
2: Of course. So the American Society of Clinical Oncology is our primary uh, society for people who uh, practice oncology of any type. Um, It's a wonderful organization, and they have a tradition of publishing this annual report called Clinical Cancer Advances. The goal of the report is really to catalog the most important clinical research advances that occurred over the past year. And to highlight uh, trends in the field, key policy developments, um, or other research priorities that uh, really have the greatest potential to promote and accelerate progress against cancer. So uh, it's a it's a big report. Um, it took an entire team to uh, create the document. There was um, a very large editorial board involved in creating. Uh, these advances and and the um, the r- advances that are reported in this are really generated by the experts in the field. Um, I was one of the editors of this. Um, there were um, a wide range of specialties represented, including pediatric oncology and geriatric oncology and, and every type of uh, cancer in between. And so the, the main criteria that goes into um, selecting something for that report are really two questions. Number one, is this something that is going to help patients live longer or live better? And number two, is the research that we want to highlight something that is really breaking into an entirely new way of treating cancer? So that's the, uh, that's the background on that report. It's a, it's a really nice document that ASCO puts out each year.
1: In the report, I I read that there's mention of refinement of surgical treatment of cancer, and there was some discussion about cervical and ovarian cancer in particular. So I just wondered, uh, specific to gynecologic cancers uh, was reported on.
2: Um, yeah, so the the question is really about the surgical advances, and, and interestingly, this is the advance of the year that was reported in that, it, refinement of surgical treatment of cancer. So surgical treatment of cancer has been around for a long time and actually is the mainstay of most cancer treatments. Um, what we are, what was highlighted in the report is really the fact that we are learning more, we as oncologists and cancer researchers are learning more about um, how best to incorporate surgery, uh, not necessarily how a surgeon, uh, how a surgery needs to be performed better, but what's the right sequence and who is the right patient to be able to have surgery so that reports specifically focused on, um, I guess, a handful of cancers such as melanoma and kidney cancer and pancreatic cancer. Um, However, that being said, we do know that in cancers like cervical cancer, there's been some interesting um, data that has come out looking at something called minimally invasive surgery, which is um, a less invasive approach, um, often used with uh, a robot or something similar. And what we have learned that has been surprising is that women with um, who are undergoing a hysterectomy for um, certain types of cervical cancer sometimes have worse outcomes when they have this minimally invasive surgery. That I think was counterintuitive because we think that, at least most of us tend to think that if you have a a less invasive surgery that seems to do the exact same thing, maybe that patient will, will feel better and have quicker recovery. Um, but this uh, there's been um, lots of research now that has come out that at least in some types of cervical cancer, that's not true. So this is really what's meant by the refinement of surgical technique or the use of surgery. Um, we also know uh, in ovarian cancer that... Um, The standard of care is really still surgery. Um, However, what we now know is that some women may benefit from chemotherapy before surgery instead of chemotherapy after surgery. And we also have the possibility of therapies to help prolong survival after ovarian cancer uh, treatment, which often includes chemotherapy and surgery. Um, There's some medications called uh, PARP inhibitors, they're pills that can be given to women who carry a predisposition um, for ovarian cancer uh, in a gene called BRCA, B-R-C-A. And PARP inhibitors tend to work well to help prolong remission after treatment for ovarian cancer. That's really encouraging. It is. It's exciting times. We still have more to do, um, but it is nice to see that there are uh, advances that are, are coming I'm
1: not sure how to phrase this question, but when you're talking about sometimes um, it's better to go ahead with chemo first and then uh, look at the possibility of surgery, um, what are the determining factors in how you make that decision? Or is that too complex?
2: Well, sometimes it is complex. Um, a lot of times it may depend on the individual patient. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of- about personalized medicine um, in the lay media and in healthcare. Um, And my take on personalized medicine really is that um, when you have a patient in front of you, that that person needs a personalized approach um, within guidelines, of course, but every patient is different. So for example, a patient may come in who has a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer, but also had a blood clot at the same time. That is someone who we wouldn't necessarily want to do surgery first with because surgery can increase the risk of another blood clot that could be life-threatening. So my job as an oncologist and the surgeon's job is really to take into consideration those factors. Ideally, we want the patient to do as well as possible. We want the surgeon to have the best possible outcome and have the, um, I guess, most technologically um, um least challenging surgery possible uh so that 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 woman standing in front of him or her um can survive as long as possible and have a chance of cure
1: well and that too to me is really encouraging because that was part of our concern with Alex that we felt she was um kind of put in a box that you know this is what you have and this is what we're going to do and um, we didn't really feel confident that she was seen as a unique individual. Well, and that was going to be kind of my follow-up, was
0: how frequently is uh, fertility preservation a part of the conversation with younger uh, patients?
2: So it really should be a part of the conversation in any woman who desires to preserve fertility. I think the challenge is that in some cases – um, a very hard decision may need to be made um, based on the type of cancer. For example, if a woman is very young um, or you know of childbearing age and has a cervical cancer that's relatively small, it may be possible to preserve fertility in that particular patient. If that same patient, though, has a cancer that is quite advanced and preserving fertility could potentially... Accelerate that woman's death, then uh, we certainly wouldn't want to pursue that unless that was really within the patient's goals. So, again, for each person in front of me as a physician, I am trying to take into consideration what that individual patient's desires and, and goals really are. Because, you know, we're humans, we all have different things we really want to achieve, and, and the treatment of the cancer needs to respect that.
1: Alex also saw a um, an infertility specialist, which was recommended by her OB/GYN uh, before she had surgery, and um, he was concerned to even retrieve eggs because of the risk of spreading the cancer. And I just wonder how often um, OB/GYNs or cancer specialists, in particular. Partner with the other specialties
2: to kind of talk about those things? That's a great question. So, ideally, that would be happening all of the time. I think for some um, centers, it's a little easier, and so it probably happens more. Um, For example, I work in an academic medical center, and we have uh, specialists at our fingertips, and so it's very easy for me to collaborate with a um, fertility preservation expert or a nephrologist or a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. It may not always be that easy in certain settings or in certain locations in the country. And so um, I would love to say that that happens everywhere, but I I know that there are constraints and it likely does not. My general advice to to patients is when, when you don't feel entirely comfortable or when you've had a a diagnosis that might be a little controversial or the experts don't tend to agree, a second opinion is always a, a great approach.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and as a physician, um, this is just a personal question, do you uh, encourage that or does it all feel like a slap in the face? <laughs> you know, we're always kind of hesitant um, to say that we want to get a second opinion but I wonder what the
2: perspective of the physician is. Sure, and so you'll probably get different answers <laughs> from different doctors. However, uh, I think in oncology and cancer care, um, it's it's recommended. Mm-hmm. I, you know, if, if I am sitting across the room from a patient and she is not at all comfortable and won't be until she gets a second opinion, then I have not achieved anything in that conversation. Right. So I, it really is, I think, to the best interest of all to have a second opinion, to, to ease the mind. Um, I think it's a personally a very good thing for the patient-physician relationship to offer it when it is necessary and um, to really encourage our patients to, to get them when they feel uncomfortable at all, or if they just want a second opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just for, um, you know, from an anecdotal standpoint, have you seen a change in the demographic um, of women who are being diagnosed and who you're treating? Um, because, you know, when I was diagnosed and treated, it was still very... This is a postmenopausal disease. It's very strange that you got this, uh, but then as I reached out through the internet, um, it seemed that it wasn't as an anomaly as everyone was saying. So, have you seen any change in the trends with your patients?
2: Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, just you know, anecdotally in my practice, I haven't noticed any particular trends, with the exception of the fact that anybody can get cancer. I've had patients as young as their their 20s, and I'll clarify that I'm an adult oncologist, so I don't see patients under 18, um, uh, and up into their their 90s. So it can affect anyone. Um, We physicians tend to go by patterns. So in the textbook, certain types of cancer are maybe more likely in postmenopausal women, and endometrial cancer is a prime example. Um, but I remind my students and residents and oncology fellows routinely that patients are not textbooks, they are people. And cancer wants to do what it's going to do, and we have to be prepared to be thinking of a diagnosis, uh, even if it doesn't fit what our textbook may tell us. Uh, there definitely are trends in cancer, though, in general, um, for example, in um, uh Cancers of the gastrointestinal tract. There are increasingly younger people uh, being diagnosed. So, uh, we there are reports that come out on trends of demographics every year, um, and it's always very interesting to see. I I don't know if it's because um, uh, I have just do that. I've done this for a while, but uh, I'm I'm always surprised when I see a young person come in. Um, surprised, but I'm not surprised because I, I do know that it can happen to anyone. Well,
1: and I think that that too is encouraging. Um, and I wish that was more widespread because I think if you're told, don't worry, the test is going to be negative. You're not in that demographic. Um, it really doesn't serve a purpose for the person who's waiting on the result.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, it's really easy to say, don't worry. It's a lot harder to practice it. And when you're a patient who's going through something that's life changing and anxiety provoking, um, I'm not sure that saying don't worry is really a helpful approach because cancer doesn't always follow the rules that we set out for it. So it's important that we pay attention to that.
1: I think too, because you work in a teaching hospital that you probably are on the edge of of the cutting edge of everything report that's out there and all the latest. So I think that's real important too. I know we've been to that facility for other things and um, have always come away enlightened. Um, So it's, it's impressive that you're able to get those reports, make that information known to others.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, oncologists go into the profession, um really because like most physicians, we want to help people. I do think different settings are good for different things, though, and and the resources may be different. Um, I work with some excellent oncologists in the community setting, in the academic setting, even in the industry setting who, you know, people working for drug companies. Um, and I think everybody's heart is in the mm-hmm. right place, but resources, May be a little different depending on where you go.
1: I agree, and that's a great way to look at it.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Markham. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you feel would be important to share?
2: I, I'll just leave you with my one piece of advice that I always uh, tell patients or audiences when I'm speaking, and that is, uh, I think the most important thing uh, we as as women can do is pay attention to our bodies. Mm-hmm. And when something isn't feeling right and we know that, then we need to advocate uh, for ourselves until we get a physician uh, or a healthcare professional to listen. Uh, if we know our bodies well, we'll know when something isn't quite, quite where it should be. You
0: said it. And that is um, exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast is just encourage women to, to do just that. Listen to their bodies and speak out and up when they need to be heard.
1: Yeah. Just be aware.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I don't think we said it in the beginning of the podcast, just kind of got into it and jumped in. But Dr. Markham is at the UF, I think they changed names, UF
2: Health now? Yes, University of Florida and UF Health. It actually has, has, it seems to have a lot of names. (laughs) Yeah, I know it is Shands. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and
0: we are so grateful that you joined us today. Um, the, this seminal is uh, very, very happy uh, with the work that's going down in Gainesville and um, very, oh, very yeah. excited to to speak with you and to just learn a little bit more from an expert.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Mary Jennifer. It's nice to be able to hear your voice. Absolutely.
0: We'd appreciate if you would subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to and go ahead and leave us a review and rate us five stars if you like us. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at downthereaware. Thanks for listening.